My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Welcome to another day as we continue our journey through the Word of God. I'm so glad you're joining me as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And today we are continuing through the chapter uh, of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, and we're going to be picking up in verse 23. Again, if you've not had a chance to like, comment, subscribe, subscribe, or share to any of the platforms that uh, that I post as these videos on, whether that be YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, podcasts, uh, everywhere, Odyssey, Library, all those places, uh, please share them as much as you can. Let's get the truth of the Word of God out and subscribe. That helps me continue to uh, share this as much as possible. Like, give me a thumbs up. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, do whatever you can because that's what increases uh, the opportunity for more people to see this. So let's pick up in Matthew 22, verse 23. The same day, the Sadducees, now the same day, there is so much that has happened on this day already. Jesus has told multiple parables already. He's meeting with the religious leaders and one after one they come, they try and trick him and then they just walk away. You know, they, they marvel and walk away on the same day. So he's not finished yet. Jesus works so hard in the week leading up to his death. He was so hard. Uh, he, he, he didn't like rest because he knew something bad was happening. No, he, 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 he literally ran to the cross for you and for, for I. The same day the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and asked him. Now, that's important. We have to, you know, we're going to talk about why they didn't believe in that. But this is, this is setting the scene for the question they're about to ask him. So they said to him, teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were with us seven brothers and the first died after he had married and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Now, remember, they don't believe in the resurrection. So when they say the word resurrection, it's with a tone of sarcasm. David Guzik gave us a great quote about the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the ancient version of the modern liberal theologians. They were anti-supernaturalistic, only accepting the first five books of Moses as authentic and disregarding what was written in those books when it pleased them to do so. The Sadducees were not many in number, but they were wealthy, the aristocratic and the governing class, William Barclay said. Carson, D.A. Carson, uh, at Jesus' time, Judaism as a whole held surprising diverse views of death and what lies beyond it. So they ask him a hypothetical question about the seven brothers. And it's actually, a, it's just a ridiculous question because they're trying to show him by a very simple uh, wordplay that the resurrection is nonsense. Now, what were they talking about? They were talking about Deuteronomy, Old Testament, chapter 25, verses 5 to 10, where if a man, and he's married, and he dies with no children, 
it's his brother's responsibility to be able to impregnate his brother's widow and then count the child as if that child was the deceased husband's descendant so that she would then have somebody to take care of her and it would be in the line of her husband. And the Pharisees imagined all these elaborate circumstances uh, along these lines. And so they say, okay, therefore in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? Now, R.T. France says this, this practice of a brother-in-law marrying the widow of his brother is known as leverite, leverate message. I'm not sure which way to pronounce it. Uh, but it, it has the word levia at the front of it. The term comes from the Latin word levia, meaning brother-in-law. This is the specific idea in question. The word used for marry is not the normal Greek word used for marry, but it is a technical term for the performance of the Levirite duty. In other words, what do you do when you get married, which is for the course uh, of reproduction. Spurgeon. Probably this was one of the stock stories that they were in the habit of telling in order to cast ridicule upon the resurrection. In other words, they had YouTube videos about why this wasn't true. Um, and they thought they were so, so clever. Um, um, you can you can understand a little bit of my sarcasm as I'm saying that. That was Spurgeon who said that. Not the quote about the uh, YouTube videos, but the quote about <laughs> them telling the story over and over to try and prove the resurrection couldn't possibly be true. So Jesus answered them, wouldn't you imagine... All the times that Jesus has answered, every time they've tried to trick him, every time he's come up with an answer, none of them were expecting. So why they kept going is just baffling to me. So Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. You're mistaken. The Sadducees connected their thoughts to a biblical passage, but they didn't think through the passage correctly. They were highly trained, but they were mistaken in their basic understanding of biblical truth. And that's a lot of people today. They, they, they're highly trained, but they're mistaken in their understanding of biblical truth. They haven't rightly divided the word of truth. This is not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Their mistake was rooted in two particular problems. Firstly, they didn't know the scriptures, even though they thought they did. And secondly, they didn't know the power of God. They, they were, they were, they didn't understand the supernatural aspect of the power of God. Which is amazing when you think that these people were career religious theologians and they were highly trained and they did not know the scriptures. What does that mean? It's possible for a person to have a lot of Bible knowledge, but for them to not know the scriptures. Uh, Paul talked about this to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. He said, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me, which suggests that biblical truth has a pattern to it. It can be, it can be detected by a discerning heart. What I'm hearing from that person doesn't follow the pattern of other things I've heard or that I understand the, the word of God to be. Uh, it also suggests that you can lose the pattern. You can forget about the pattern, which is why you've got to hold fast to the pattern. And the Sadducees had Bible knowledge, but they didn't hold fast to the pattern of sound words. And I think a lot of people today, Christians, are like that. They also didn't understand the power of God. They denied, the Sadducees denied supernatural truths. That's why they had a problem with resurrection. Uh, they denied the existence of angels. They, they had a fundamental doubt about anything that they couldn't see. Uh, 
They had a doubt about the power of God to actually do beyond what they personally could measure. And I think a lot of people today are Sadducees. They, they, they reduce God down to something that makes sense to them. I hear a lot of Christians say, well, it makes sense to me that God would do this. And if he loved people, he would be okay with that. And he would love, and so, well, it doesn't need to make sense to you. Isaiah said that he doesn't think like you. His ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. His thoughts are not your thoughts, Isaiah wrote. So Jesus says, if you knew the power of God. Matthew Poole said, uh, if you knew the power of God, you would know that God is able to raise the dead. If you knew the scriptures, you would know that God will raise the dead. This is an observation that was just lost on the these people, these religious Sadducees at the time. So let's read on to verse 30. Starting at verse 30 here. Okay. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Remember, the question is about this woman. She's married to seven brothers doesn't have any children by any of them. Which one is she going to be married to in heaven, thinking they've tricked God to prove that the resurrection isn't real? In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels, like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Yet again, before they were marv- they were marveled. They marveled at his teaching. <laughs> now they're astonished. Yet again, surprise, surprise. So Jesus reminds them that life in the resurrection is different from life in this life. It doesn't merely continue in the same vein as this world and its its arrangements that we have. It's a completely different order of life. And this passage has made a lot of people wonder if marriage relationships will exist in heaven or if people who are husband and wife on earth won't have any relationship in heaven. We're actually not told enough about what it's going to be like in great detail, but we can understand a few principles. Family relationships will still be known in the world beyond. How do we know this? Because the rich man that was described in the afterlife in the story in Luke chapter 16, 27, 28, he was aware of his family relationships. Uh, what's another principle? The glory of heaven will be a relationship and a connection with God that surpasses everything else and anything else, including our present family relationships. That's Revelation 21. We're getting second last chapter in the Bible. The fact that we are in heaven with God and in the presence of his glory will mean that the things that we think that concern us about what heaven's going to be like won't concern us. David Guzik said this, If it seems that life in the resurrection that Jesus spoke of here does not include some of the pleasures of life on earth that we know, it is only because the enjoyments and satisfactions of heaven far surpass what we know on earth. We can't completely be certain what life in glory and in heaven beyond will be like, but we can know with certainty that no one will be disappointed with the arrangements. Revelation chapter 22. And this question is not merely theoretical. There's going to be many people in heaven who have had more than one spouse because of divorce, Lots of reasons. Jesus here tells us that jealousy, 
that exclusion have no place in heaven. It, it, we have to remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, that eye has not seen, nor has the ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for them that love him. God is preparing something amazing in heaven that we can't see, we can't imagine, and it's going to be more amazing than we anything we could possibly come up with. Now, Jesus said that uh, in the resurrection, they will be like angels. Jesus here said that the angels of God in heaven do not marry. Because that's what he's just talking about. There's no marriage in heaven. So that tells us a little bit about angels. Angels don't marry. They're not married. Uh, D.A. Carson, the most obvious point must not be neglected in this story that Jesus told the Sadducees that angels were real. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in angels. He talks about the resurrection and he talks about angels. Very interesting. Can't overlook that. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Jesus demonstrates the reality of the resurrection and he only used the Torah. Why did he do that? Or the Torah as it's it's pronounced, the first five book of Moses. They were the only books that the Sadducees actually accepted as being authoritative. And if Abraham, Isaac and Jacob did not live on in the resurrection, then God would say that he was the God of Abraham instead of saying, I am the God of Abraham. Spurgeon, the living God is the God of living men. And Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are still alive and identified as the same persons who lived on earth. This is a point here. It gives us a bit of an understanding. So we move on to verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that, that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. This is hilarious. They gathered together, and then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? This just, this, I love this because Sadducees just get put away by Jesus. And here's this lawyer who's a Pharisee. He's just waiting for the Pharisees, the Sadducees to be done. And so they, 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 they all left, some marveled, some astonished. And he says, right, my turn. He's not going to get past me. I, I know how to, I know how to get him. I know how to get him. Uh, it's a fascinating scene of all these people who opposed and rejected Jesus trying to work together and alone in any capacity to prove that he wasn't the Messiah. So he asked him a question. Now, the question was planned to trap Jesus because if Jesus was to choose one great commandment, they have to make Jesus show neglect for other areas of the law. Jesus answers and says to him, again, wouldn't you imagine they would have understood how this is going to play out? But no. Not real sharp, these people. Jesus said to him, you want to know, like, so he says, which commandment's the greatest? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus perfectly understood the essence of the law. 
He had no difficulty answering this question. Instead of promoting one command over another, Jesus defined the law in its core principles. Love the Lord with everything that you've got, and then love your neighbour as yourself. Now, it's very clear what it means to love the Lord with everything that we have, but it's it, nobody's ever pulled it off perfectly. We try, but nobody's ever pulled it off perfectly. But there's a lot of confusion about what it means to love your neighbour as yourself. It doesn't just mean that we must love ourselves before we can love anyone else. It means that in the same way that we take care of ourselves and we're concerned about our own interests, we should take care and have concern for the interests of others. And Jesus says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. God's moral expectation of us can be briefly and powerfully said in these two sentences, if the life of God is real in our life, it will show by the presence of of a love for God and it will show in a love for other people. This is what sums up how people can see that if you've given your life to Jesus, you've accepted his free gift of salvation and you've been transformed by the renewing of your mind, This is how people can see that you're different because you love God and you love people. So let's move on to the, as we start to get towards the close of this particular chapter, verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathering and gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Now, I love this because Jesus has just answered one question after another. Question, 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 answer, 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 blows them away, blows them away, blows them away. While they're still scratching their heads trying to come up with another question, Jesus says, you know what? Turn the tables. Time for me to ask you a question. So while they're still getting themselves together, Jesus says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Uh now, let, let's just let's kind of break this down. Um, the question, who, "What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he?" was a similar question to the question Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew sixteen: "Who do you say that I am?" And Jesus confronts his opponents with the need for them to finally decide who he is, and he's connecting himself here to the Old Testament understanding of the Messiah, which was the Christ. They've been asking him all these questions to prove who he is. So he says, okay, so who do you say this person in the Old Testament that you believe, the Christ, who is he then? Who is he? And they said, oh, he's the son of David. Uh, That's one of the Old Testament titles for the Messiah. And it's founded on the covenant that God made with King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it identifies the Christ as the chosen descendant of King David's royal line, which you can read about in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, and Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33. The son of David, it's possible that the Pharisees didn't know or had forgotten the line of King David and that Jesus was in that line. Remember, Matthew starts with the genealogy of Jesus. They, these people had forgotten that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the place that it was prophesied that he would be born, in the city of David. That's where he was born. When Jesus had just recently entered Jerusalem, 
They talked about how he was from Nazareth. And all these connections to King David seem to have escaped them. They seem to have forgotten that. So he asked them the question, who is this, this Christ that you read of in the Old Testament? They're like, oh, he's the son of David. Not one of them went, he's the son of David. Hang on a sec, that's you. Like, none of them did that, <laughs> um, which I think is just amazing. So what happens? Verse 43. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? How then does David in the spirit call him Lord? The Pharisees were partially right in saying the Messiah was the son of David, but they didn't have a complete understanding of who the Messiah is. He was not only and is not only David's son, which is a reference to his humanity. He is also David's Lord, which is a reference to his deity as Jesus the Messiah was. D.A. Carson, the force of Jesus' argument depends on his use of Psalm 110, which is the most frequently quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. And this is the idea that's communicated in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, verse 16, I am the root and the offspring of David. And Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 4, which shows Jesus as both the son of David and the son of God. And we, we cannot neglect either one of Jesus' identities. He is truly man and he's truly God and he can only be our saviour if he's both. So then Jesus says to them, if David then calls him Lord, how is he son? His son, because if, if he's the son of David, why would he be calling him Lord if he's also his son? So it's a brilliant explanation by Jesus, very simple of the scriptures. And it put the Pharisees on the defensive because they didn't want to admit that the Messiah was also the Lord God. They didn't want to say that the Messiah, the Christ, was also God. But Jesus showed that this was true from the scriptures that they knew. So what did Jesus mean? Well, it can only mean one thing, that the true description of Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of David. See, Son of David's not enough. He's Son of God, Son of David. So what happens? And no one was able to answer him a word. Surprise, surprise, shock, horror. Can you believe it? Yet again, nobody's got anything to say. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. The religious leaders tried to trap Jesus time and time again, embarrass him in front of all the people who were there for the Passover. Uh, all these people that had heard Jesus teach but Jesus embarrassed them with his answers. Carson said this, Yet even their silence was a tribute. The teacher who never attended the right schools, as talked about in John 7, 15 to 18, confounds the greatest theologians in the land. And if his question in Matthew 22, verse 45, was unanswerable at this time, a young Pharisee named Paul, who may have been in Jerusalem at the time, was to answer it in due course, reading from Romans chapter 1. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Logic, rhetoric proved absolutely useless 
in attacking Jesus. Now his enemies are going to use treachery and they're going to use violence. They've run out of words. Jesus was done dealing with the religious leaders at this time. He's not answering any more questions. This is the end of his earthly defense ministry, answering questions. From now on, he's not going to debate with the religious leaders. From now on, he's just going to converse directly with the crowds. Observations, marriage, marriage, divorce and death. Don't worry about it in heaven. It's all going to work out. Okay, it's going to be more amazing than you think. I love it that we'll get to know our family members. I have confidence in that, that I'll see my papa, my pa, my nana, my grandma, my great-grandma, my great-grandfather. People, you know, I, I love that. Um, anybody from my family who knows Jesus, I'm going to spend eternity with them and know, know them in heaven. I don't know what the relationship will feel like, but I just know that I'll know them. Then my second observation is there comes a time when you've got to stop asking questions and you have to make a decision. Who's, who is the Christ? Who's the Messiah? And you can't, if you turn around and walk away, then your eternity is sealed by your decision to walk away. Uh, we need to just trust him. We need to be okay with him leading our lives. We need to be in a position where Jesus has satisfactorily answered every question on the cross by dying for you and for me. Nobody else has ever done that. So, lot to ponder, lot to observe. Love to hear what you've observed. Leave some comments in the descriptions below. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for a great day in your word. I pray, Lord, that we would not get concerned or worried about the future in heaven, but know that it's going to be absolutely amazing. In Jesus' name. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day.